Dr. Amy King, and this podcast is the most important medicine. And if you are a physician or healthcare leader, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. And we do this through stories, through the stories of other professionals, of yours and your patients. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-responsive practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with your patients right away. And if you are a nurse who's listening today, you can go to rnegade.pro and get credits for listening to this podcast, which is amazing. Uh, Today, I am super excited to introduce my guest, Dr. Lee Cordell. Um, She is an expert and an anti-shame coach, the CEO and founder of the Institute of Trauma and Psychological Safety, and the host of the podcast, Becoming Trauma-Informed. Dr. Lee uses her 15-plus years of experience in healthcare, psychology, and education to help her professional and entrepreneurial clients release shame and prioritize pleasure as a path to trusting themselves to call in what they desire. Her mission is to empower people in the development of safe, healthy, and shame-free personal and professional relationships. Welcome, Lee. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I mean, that's the bio that's formally out into the world. Tell listeners, like, who are you really? (laughs) Um, So I actually... It's funny because my husband was on a podcast yesterday and it was one of his first ones. And he's like, how do I tell people? I'm like, tell them who you are, like, tell them what you're excited about. And so it's funny now being in that seat and going like, who am I? What am I excited about? Um, I'm a, I'm a wife of 18 years. My husband and I have the same name. We're both Lee. So that's really fun. (laughs) Yes. Um, he goes by TLC in our organization because we work together. Um, a mom of three kids. Uh, I am a human who, you know, has their own really um, complex, I guess would be the word, trauma history, diagnosis of complex PTSD and um, neurodivergence. And I really, I get really excited about helping people feel safer and more supported and just, uh, more comfortable being themselves in connection with other humans. Like that is why I, I just get so um, lit up by creating those types of experiences and, and, and seeing other people be able to experience those. And I'm also a huge, like, um, I guess the word, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if this is a, a cool word anymore, but like, I'm such a science nerd. I think it's so cool to, uh, to understand the neuroscience and the chemicals and all the physiology behind um, the very real and raw emotions and and sensations that we experience. So like, I love to bring that piece into like, that is absolutely my jam. Yeah. Well, and you'll have, you have a lived experience perspective because of neurodivergence as well, right? So you have this incredible compassion that likely also comes into play. Um, For those of you that are listening to Lee and I today, I was on her podcast and you can go back and listen to it. You can almost think of it like a part one and part two series um, because we're just going to dive right in. We've already talked for an hour with each other on Lee's podcast. podcast. And and so I'm going to dive right into something you just said. Um, You said you really um, want to decrease, you know, 
shame and increased connection among folks. Yeah. What do you, what are the barriers? You know, I think like the place that I was, it was funny that I ended up going here. And this is the answer that I have because my husband actually is the one who studies history. Like he is a, he got his degree in history and psychology on uh, I never thought I was interested in history until I looked at like the historical narrative behind why our society looks the way it does today. And I really think one of the biggest barriers is, is that, you know, we're not just humans, we're mammals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the last several hundred years, our brains and our technology and the way we live and the way we connect has just changed so much comparatively to the years before that, the long time before that. And so we are these mammals in, um, who have these very biological, evolutionary, sensible things going on that I think just in the recent time aren't necessarily matching up with how we're living. Mm -hmm. And I, like case in point, you know, we, if you go back and look at how kids were traditionally reared, um, you know, since humanity started, most kids had on average four caregivers to every one child who could serve as a model, who could serve as a source of connection for nurturing all of those things. Now it's flipped and most kids, um, it's, it's one adult for every two kids, I think. And so it's this massive shift in how we learn how to connect with other people and the amount of humans that we have to learn from. And so I think that when you take that overlaying historical context and then put it on top of the fact that we have a lot of humans that just in the last two generations, you know, experienced some really significant trauma, great depression, you know, world wars, Korea, Vietnam, um, a lot of like the civil rights movement, all of these things. We have both of the, those things going on. And so we've got a lot of humans with trauma that are raising kiddos that, and in the raising of those kiddos, they have a lot less help and a lot less um, of a community to rely on to raise those kiddos. Mm -hmm. And yet we still all feel super connected with one another because of social media and news and the internet and all of these things. And so it's, we think it's, we are at least, right? We think we're connected. We think we are connected. And yet the way in which we are connecting with other people is not that deep. That's right. In, like intimate level that we used to connect with people. And so I think that there's just been this really big shift in how, um, I think you and I talked about this on my podcast, like how psychologically safe people feel. Right. And so, yeah, I think that like, that's probably the biggest barrier is that we don't understand the, the big shifts that have happened and how they are impacting us. And also like, they just keep coming because things are evolving so much more rapidly. Well, and I, I think we should be specific, right? There are a lot of other countries that have a much more collectivistic culture that have that village yes. mentality, right? That wrap around kids and families and a lot of other cultures that have multi-generational living. And um, it really is kind of the 
dominant Eurocentric culture in which we live that is so individualistic and, you know, um, mom should do everything and raise two kids and do it all on her own. Or even if it's a two-parent household that they should be, you know, not needing the supports of grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles that are actually really enriching for kids and communities and help foster a sense of resilience, just having those people in your lives. Um, let me magnify this though, especially to healthcare, because on this podcast, I talk to, and a lot of healthcare professionals listen, mm -hmm. there's deep, deep disconnect in healthcare as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the other major systems that shifted during this time is, and I was, I think I had been a nurse practitioner for I don't know, six, seven years before I had a friend give me a book called, um, witches, nurses, and midwives. Hmm. And I can't remember the name of the author at okay. this point. Well, I'll find and it. I'm, yeah, I'm reading this and I'm going, what, <laughs> like, what, I, this is how the, the American medical system was created. This is, this is how things happen. And, and granted, you know, you take every source with, you understand where every source is coming from. And I, I didn't, I didn't know that there was such a capitalistic piece to how we determined what medical schools were going to be funded and which weren't and, um, you know, pulling holistic things out of the, the curriculum. And if you didn't, then, you know, you didn't necessarily receive funding in specific places or uh, accreditation. And there's just all of these pieces mm -hmm. and parts to how our medical system over the last 150 years in the United States has developed mm -hmm. that when you look at it, you're like, oh, this is, there's some definite disconnects here. Mm -hmm. And it does make it really hard for us as clinicians who, I mean, I believe every clinician that comes, goes into healthcare is like, I want to help people. I want to make a difference. Yes. There are so, there's so much disconnect between that, uh, that desire when you go in and then the reality of mm -hmm. what you have to do in order to stay employed and get reimbursed and, uh, you know, hit metrics and do all of these things. And so it's, it's that system, I think parallels the disconnect in some of these other places. Agree. Um, would you mind Lee sharing your story as a nurse and kind of your experience in healthcare and, and what led you now into this path of, you know, kind of entrepreneurial world and coaching because of your experience as a clinician? Sure. So I actually went into nursing thinking I was going to be a midwife. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the, I had trained as a doula and had worked with one client and said, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a midwife. That's what I want to do. And I was living in central Ohio at the time and the school that I went to said, yes, we will absolutely train you. And the likelihood you're going to find a job in Ohio, which is one of the most medicalized states when it comes to pregnancy and childbirth is very low. You're going to have to move to, you know, the Appalachia area or to a different state. And I had one young child at the, at the time we were planning on more. And I, I just thought, you know, we want to stay here. So what can I do? So I ended up switching um, to 
become an acute care nurse practitioner, which is a very different experience. And, and the reason that I did that was because when I was in my clinicals, I actually had an ER rotation and in one of the level one trauma centers at, I think at the time, the second largest or the, the first largest, uh, emergency room in the state. And I was like, Oh, there's so much adrenaline here. Like, I feel so, I feel like I'm, I can do things that impact things, Mm -hmm. right? Like I, I can save people here. And I didn't realize that's what was going on at the time. So I went into acute care. I worked in the medical ICU as a nurse while I was getting my nurse practitioner degree. And while I was pregnant with twins, I do not recommend that. Um, (laughs) Do not recommend. (laughs) Yeah. Zero out of five stars. Do not recommend. Um, And really looking back now, what I can see is, is that my childhood trauma and the anxiety, the panic attacks, the hypervigilance, the hyperarousal I was experiencing all the time, being in an ICU, being in that really, um, that fast paced environment and also working, you know, 60, 80 hours a week, that was a really great place for me to use as an outlet for all of that. It was like, oh, I'm anxious and I'm tired because there's all this stuff going on around me and I got four hours of sleep. And so that's why I feel the way I feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up moving into bone marrow transplant as mm-hmm. a nurse practitioner, uh, which was quite surprising because my mother was actually a, a cancer, an oncologic social worker. And I was like, I will never work in cancer. I will never work in cancer. And of course that's never say up. never. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Pretty sure I told her I'd never be a nurse too, but, um, I, I really like that was a home for me. That was the first place that, you know, you get to spend six to eight weeks with your patients. Mm -hmm. Um, you get to know their families and it's so different from the ICU because the ICU it's, we've got a different, there's a little bit of a different goal from an urgency perspective there. This was really, you know, um, I had a half an hour to sit down and talk with my patients and their families and get to know them. And I, I really bonded with the team there. And that was, that was a place that I, I don't, I, I don't think that I could find another place in the world that I would have felt that connected. And like, I, I belonged that much as well, part of the team. Can I point something out Lee? Like if our, you yeah. like this implicitly, but for our listeners, right? Like clearly there was this deep desire you had for connection, right? Like yes. you started in midwife and, you know, midwifery and doulas shout out to, to those folks that do that work, right? That really is about connection with the family yes. and getting to know them. And you're like, well, maybe not in Ohio. So I'm going to shift to acute care, but like your core being took you back to, I want to be in connection. I want to be yeah. part of someone's story. Yes. So then you yes. have yourself in the bone marrow transplant unit. Yes. And, you know, I'd always thought there was some definite egoic stuff at play because I was always like, yeah, but you got to go back to the ICU. You got to go back to the ICU. You got to prove that you can do that. Right. (laughs) There were some speed bumps along the way where I had thought that I was going to go back and then things didn't work out. And I finally got the, finally got the opportunity to go back into the ICU. And actually it was on a different floor than the one I worked on, but it was the same unit, same nurses, same nurse practitioners, everyone. And I transitioned over there and I made it 10 weeks. And 
they were, they were like, you're doing phenomenally. Like we, you know, they're already, you already have a full patient load. You're great. I was crying in my car. Every time I left, I was having a panic attack before I went every time. And finally, my husband looked at me and, and by the way, I'm already, I also have a network marketing thing going on the side. Cause of course I can't just do the one thing I'm trying to find all these outlets for the anxiety. And my husband said, just quit, just quit. Like you're doing well enough over here. You can grow your business. You can be home. You can see your babies. Like yeah. we can be more connected as a fa- connected as a family. Yeah. And so I put in my two weeks notice and it was fascinating because that, that boss called me in her office and just ripped me a new one Wow! about you should be able to handle this. Mm. Like you shouldn't have put your notice in. You should have like, it was just should, should, should. And it really confirmed for me, like, this is not the right place because it wasn't a, are you okay? How can we help? What can we do? It was a, you've let us down. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so and for those of you that can't see Lee right now, cause we're on, if you're listening, yeah. but if you're watching the video, Lee's wearing a shirt that says like, no shame, right? Yes. Yes. And- it was, it was a very shameful. Yeah. Yeah. It was very shameful. And, and so I was like, okay, well, that's it. And, um, interestingly enough, when I was in nurse practitioner school, I had connected with somebody in bone marrow transplant, um, in the outpatient setting. She's the one who actually was like, you need to interview inpatient with bone marrow. Mm -hmm. And she, at that point had become my boss's boss's boss. Mm -hmm. And she called me into her office and she said, I, we absolutely do not want to lose you. And I said, I just, I feel embarrassed. I feel, she said, no, she's like, what we learned is that that was not the right space for you. And she said, and I believe everything happens for a reason because now you have 10 weeks of critical care experience that you didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And we are starting a brand new position and you can be the first nocturnal nurse practitioner in our cancer center. Wow. Because we, tr- I trust you to do that. I know, you know, cancer and I know, you know, critical care. And mm-hmm. so I became the first nurse practitioner at this university, um, to be the first on call. It was a, it was a physician role before that. And, uh, when I left three years later, they had 13 nurse practitioners. Wow. And it was a really cool job. It was a, it was a great job to be able to like really foster my skill set. And I got to connect with people. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of it was, is it was 20 hour shifts. Mm -hmm. And I was slowly starting to realize that my nervous system was reaching a point of no return. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic hit. Wow. Yeah. And when that happened, I had shifted into from network marketing into coaching because I had actually had a friend who was a network marketer coach. She, she pulled me aside one day. She's like, Lee, why are you still doing this? She's like, your favorite part about this is coaching people. Why are you still trying to sell stuff? (laughs) And so I had been working with her kind of on the side and that had really taken off. And when the pandemic hit, so many people were like, you're a coach, right? You have trauma training, right? Yeah. Can you help me? And so my business like quadrupled in by May of 2020 while I was still working. And, and it just, I just started to see, I'm not able to connect with my patients the way I want. 
-hmm. because of how the pandemic has shifted everything. So many rules and regulations. I'm not able to, I'm feeling terrified every time I walk in here because of my kids and because, you know, um, I'm afraid I'm going to get my patients sick by bringing something in. And I'm afraid I'm going to get my family sick by bringing something home. Right. And we had another moment where I, I turned to my husband and I said, what, what do I have to do to leave? Mm-hmm. Like, what do I have to do? And he was like, hit this amount three months in a row. And I was like, done. Okay. And I did it. Yeah. And he's like, okay, quit. So, so I want to, I want to just pause and reflect for people who are listening. What Lee just shared about like our nervous system almost finds the niche that we need for better or for worse. Right. It's like, yes, experience complex trauma. And then all of a sudden you're in this acute care space and you're like, oh, this fits my need. Right. Like it matches the level of of adrenaline that I experience those cortisol levels via trauma. This is kind of the environment in which my nervous system lives. And then it sounds like you got to a point where you're like 20 hour shifts, no connection, global pandemic your nervous system said, no, thank you. Yeah. And, and I, you know, there's pieces and parts in that story that I even left out because I actually, at one point, you know, um, shifted to being more of a professor. And so I was doing half bedside and half, um, academia and, you know, I kept just jumping. I kept like trying to find the thing that was going to help me feel better mm-hmm. until finally, the pandemic made me realize like, there is nothing that is going to make you feel better. Like, like this isn't a, a hole that can be filled. This is a, you got to go do some work, right? You got to go, you got to go do some therapy. You got to go do some emotional regulation work. Like you've got to go get yourself right. Because all of these, um, I, we used to joke and since this is a, a healthcare podcast, I think people will get this because it's kind of, you kind of sometimes develop a rather sick humor in the yeah. healthcare field because if we used to say, if you don't laugh, you cry, right? Mm-hmm. And we used to say during the pandemic that it felt like we were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Yes. Right? Like we're making things look pretty as the ship is sinking. Mm-hmm. And that was how I, I started to feel. I was like, I'm trying to do all of this cosmetic stuff, like switch jobs or switch titles or, or you know, start this new thing over here. And like, that's not the answer. The answer is, is like, what, figure out what's making the ship sink. Yes. And that is probably the hardest thing that I've ever done is ask myself that question and be willing to go into that, down that tunnel of, oh, wow, there's some stuff that happened in my childhood. And there's some things that happened in, um, you know, in my teen years. And there's some things that happened in my marriage. And like, there's, there's just like, there's trauma here. And, and I think from them and the, and all of the things that are happening are just exacerbating this. Yeah. And, and I think so. what the other piece I didn't realize is, is, you know, in critical care, like you, we, I would say I lost, and I, I use that word, you know, I lost seven out of 10 patients I took care of. There's still moments that I can remember from being a nurse in the ICU and being in BMT that like, 
I will never get those images out of my head. I, I had one experience when I came back after having my twins. And again, thinking about the systems that we have, I had to come back after seven weeks. I had a kid at home that was on an apnea monitor and on oxygen. One of the twins, I had another twin that had reflux, didn't sleep at night. And then I had a two-year-old. My husband's like trying to patch, like keep things together while I'm gone. I'm breastfeeding, you know, and I, I, there was a moment maybe two weeks after I returned to work and um, we had to code a patient that like within five minutes of me coming on shift and it lasted for, I don't know, 90 minutes, two hours, and it did not end well. And I remember looking down at my scrub top and I'm, I'm leaking. Yes. Oh. And I walked out of the room and I pointed at my charge nurse and she was like, go, go, I'll get, I'll get you a pair of scrubs. Just go. And I just went to the pump room and I called my husband and I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know why I'm doing this. And, but there were so many of those moments where, okay, you pumped, you're back on the, you're back on the unit. It's been 20 minutes, like shove it down, pretend everything's fine. Move on. Move on. Cause you still got 11 hours or 10 hours. And my hope, you know, one of my many hopes with this podcast, Lee, but you're speaking to it so beautifully and painfully is that the more practitioners and providers that share stories, the less aloneness we will have so that somebody else can listen to that story and say, my God, that's me. And maybe they're not a breastfeeding postpartum mom. Maybe they're a surgeon that's being asked to do, you know, multiple hours on their feet with no rest, no breaks for them, for their teams. Maybe they're a resident who's listening, working 90 hour weeks, but whatever the case may be, my hope is that when people hear other folks' stories that they go, this isn't okay. Because there's so much identity wrapped up in medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And then shame if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I have had several private clients now in that were in the healthcare field that left healthcare Mm -hmm. and to start businesses. And what I've found so fascinating as I've like watched, you know, you start to see patterns and I, I can see their patterns in myself too. There's a couple patterns that come up. The first is there is a lot of guilt Mm -hmm. of, oh my gosh, like I was actually a good clinician and now I'm not there. So people aren't getting my help. Right. So there's, there's guilt around that. There's shame of like, yeah, there there's shame around why couldn't I handle it when everyone else can, which by the way, most people aren't. Yes. But that's how you feel. See that again. That's so important, right? Yeah. It's, it's, we feel like we're alone. Like I'm the one who can't handle this. Why couldn't I handle this when everyone else could? And and the thing is, is that nobody's handling it. It's it's just, again, deck chairs on the Titanic. You're make, We're making it look pretty. And then the third thing that I see is, and this is something I went through, is when you live in that state of hyperarousal for that long mm-hmm. and you leave it, your nervous system is going to be jacked for a hot minute. And And what I mean by that is you are so far outside of your window of tolerance that your nervous system is going to still be looking for things to freak out about or to, to respond to. And so when there's nothing for it to respond to, that's actually likely going to produce anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so you might feel more anxious, have more, what we refer to in the, the trauma world as like intrusive symptoms of like panic attacks or anxiety or insomnia or, you know, jumpiness, you might have more of that. 
And then you also might have a bunch of uh, constrictive symptoms where it's like, well, I don't really want to go because you've lost your community, right? Like you've lost being able to, to, you know, kind of as a euphemism, like swap war stories or like be in the break room with people. And so you've lost this connection that you've had with people who get it. And so everyone's like, oh my gosh, don't you feel so much more relieved? Don't you feel so great? And I was like, no, actually I am crawling out of my skin. And then about three months later, my body crashed Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden it was like, okay, we're safe. Yes. Yes. And I'm like sleeping 12 hours a day. I don't want to work. Like, I don't want to do any work. I, and I was like, am I depressed? What is this? And it was, it was literally my body going, no, no. We don't have to be, we don't have to keep pumping you full of adrenaline because you don't need it anymore. And so we're going to like start backing that off. And it, it felt so weird to go from, oh, I could work 80 hours a week to like, now I can't work 30. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the phrase you use, Lee. We get so outside our window of tolerance Mm-hmm. that when we do take a break, then it's like our body's almost like hypervigilant looking for that outlet, looking for that space. And then it can finally begin to relax. If we allow that time and space, yeah. right, it can finally begin to relax. And I, I want people to think about that nervous system response like we would any kind of healing process from a total joint replacement, from, you know, a a person who's really sick and requires several rounds of antibiotic treatments, from our body healing after, you know, being exposed to radiation or chemotherapy, right? Like it's a, it's a physiological response in our body, like anything Mm -hmm. else is. And I think sometimes when we talk about trauma, people think trauma up here in our head, but your nervous system is experiencing that. And I think that sometimes that's the only way that providers give themselves compassion is if they think about it in medical terms, right? My body is healing. Yes. And, and I, it's, it's fascinating to me too, because medically, I think over the last so like last few decades, we're really starting to acknowledge mental health and the like that the brain is part of the body yeah. and that, you know, depression and anxiety and um, all sorts of, you know, mental struggles that they get to carry the same weight as a broken hip or a heart attack or all of those things. And you know, Gabor Mate, who uh, is, you know, he's just, he's such a, he's such a goat in the trauma world. Um, he is amazing. He, t- he said this and actually it, it really resonated for my husband who again is not, it has no medical background. He was listening to one of his podcasts and he said, you know, in medicine, we really like to break the body into systems. Yes. Forgetting that these systems are so interconnected. Again, that theme of connection, he said, if your nervous system is off because of your um, psychological, what you've gone through psychologically, that affects your immune system, that affects your gut, that affects your heart health, that affects your musculoskeletal, like all, all of it. 
And we do this thing where we go, oh, well, we'll just give somebody a medicine, you know, we'll put them on an antidepressant and then they're good to go. And it's like, okay, (laughs) maybe, but that should be the first thing we do, not the last thing we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what has been so surprising to me is I, I tell people this all the time. I say, I am not a mental health provider. That is not what I'm here to do. I am here to show you how your nervous system works and how it connects to your daily life. Like that is what we're going to do here. And I know you'll appreciate this because I know you incorporate this into your work, but I've had clients say, you know, I was in therapy for years Mm -hmm. and you just had me like pay attention to my feelings and like what was happening in my body. And and you explained to me like the window of tolerance and, and it's been four months and I am significantly less symptomatic than I was for the last 10 years. And and I think that's part of why I'm so passionate about this is because when I go and talk to hospitals or, you know, um, speak at nursing conferences and I, I ask people to raise their hands and I'm like, who knows what trauma informed care is? Like who understands maybe 25%, maybe. 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 And I'm like, this is the thing that not only we need as healthcare providers, but like how helpful would it be to give this to our patients and understand that being able to see them as humans who've had all of these lived experiences before they walk into their office, both for you to be able to see that and for them to understand it. Like how cool is that? Yeah. I mean, that's why you and I are on a mission to make sure that happens. Yeah. Um, let me shift just a bit. So part of the large body of work that you do is to decrease shame. Yeah. Um, And being a shame expert, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what that means for, Mm -hmm. you know, someone in the healthcare system or, um, you know, kind of like what the goal or aim would be? Yeah. Uh, So when we think about shame, shame is a fascinating sensation, emotion, If you think about guilt, guilt is I feel bad because I've done something wrong. Shame is I feel like I'm wrong. Right. Right. So it's, it's the difference between our, our actions and our identity, like our character. Mm -hmm. And so when we experience shame in our bodies, it actually feels the same as like a lot of people describe it as I feel like I'm going to die. I, I feel like I want to right now, if, if I said, imagine somebody who's feeling ashamed of themselves, like you could probably do it, their heads down their body, like they're protecting themselves they're curled up in a ball. They're not making eye contact, like, and something wrong with me, there's something wrong with me. And so talking about the theme of connection, shame causes us to disconnect either from others or what it tells us to do is, okay, this part of me is not acceptable. This part of me is not okay in this space. If I show people this, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be judged. So let me like cut this off and lock it up and pretend it doesn't exist. And I think as medical professionals, we do this a lot, right? How many of us lock up our emotions because we were taught, I remember what I was taught is never show more emotion than your patient. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's shameful for me as a provider to cry in front of a patient 
especially if they're not crying. And, and now I just call, you know, I, well, <laughs> I call BS on that because what if my patient needs to see the tears in my eyes to be able to express theirs, right? Like what if my, my patient needs to be able to feel that compassion from me in order to be able to like drop in to their feelings. So there's a lot of places that we experience shame. And it's like I said before, you know, I should have been able to stay. So we experience shame a lot of times when we feel like we aren't living up to the expectations of other people. And that's actually one of the four key pieces of shame is disappointment expectation where I've disappointed somebody. And when now, again, I'm a nurse, so I did not go through the, the physician. I didn't go the physician pathway. And what I will say is, is watching some of my physician colleagues, quote unquote, mentored or taught, it was, it was entirely shame-based and watching them have to, um, this was the term that they taught me. They said, yeah, we get pimped. And I said, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. They said, yeah, well, you know, you go to rounds and if you get something wrong, like you have to say it in front of everybody. And if you get something wrong, they kind of yell at you or like, you kind of, you feel stupid. And like, that's how you learn. And I'm like, that is not how we learn. It's not how we learn. That is how we learn to not feel like we can ever make a mistake. Yes. And so when you think about shame too, in the larger medical system, I remember, you know, don't admit you've made mistakes. Don't chart mistakes in the chart. Don't do any of that because that could be used legally against us. And so many of our patients, all they wanted, like they, they, if we made a mistake, they wanted us to care that we made a mistake. Absolutely. Yeah. And so for me to not be able to go into a patient's room and say, I'm so sorry this happened mm-hmm. and have to be like, well, you know, and, and not be able to connect with this person over something that was, that was a really hard thing to be able to like justify in my brain of, I, I'm not ashamed of the fact that we had 40 patients and like this one thing got missed. That's a system problem, not a me problem. You know, when we think about this from a connection perspective, if we can release shame and, and one of the things that we teach our participants at our Institute to do, as I said, anytime you notice yourself feeling shame and we actually go through and figure out what this person's personal shame experience looks like. So not only what is happening in my body. So like, are my hands clenching up? Do I feel my ribs concaving in? Do I notice that my eyes go down? Do I notice my cheeks get hot? Do I notice I get nauseated? So that person can figure out exactly what shame feels like. We also look at the thoughts. For me, one of the thoughts that comes up with shame is I'm so stupid. Mm -hmm. If I hear myself think or say, I'm so stupid, I know I'm in a shame state. Mm -hmm. And from there, we teach our people to what we call take the opposite action. Yep. So if, so if shame's telling me, oh, go isolate yourself because you made a mistake. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my regulation practices and get back into a calmer body. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to say, Hey, I'm feeling some shame right now because I am so worried. Like my brain is telling me the story. My brain is telling me is that I just said this really like ridiculous thing and you now hate me. Yep. And normally the other person is like, uh, no. Right. Yeah. 
So, so I want to operationalize this for people that are listening. What I hear Lee saying is first we have to tune into ourselves and go, what does shame feel like? What does it look like? How do we recognize it in our bodies and in our brains? Mm -hmm. When we recognize it, pause Mm -hmm. and look internally for what's going on with us, do some reflection and then do the opposite, right? That comes from the DBT world, opposite action, right? To become regulated again, um, right? And, And actually seek out connection versus what our brain is telling us, which is to feel bad and disconnect from others because they think we're horrible, bad, stupid people, but instead check in with other people about the narrative that shame is creating. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to just be shame. It can be any emotion that you feel that, uh, like that is emotion that you don't typically like to feel. Mm -hmm. Some people have a really hard time feeling excitement because maybe when they were younger and they got excited, they got yelled at and were told to calm down. Right. So it can be, I, I, we don't like to use the words positive and negative in terms of like, happy and joyous versus sad. No, it's positive and negative versus like, this is an emotion that feels safe to feel. And this is an emotion that doesn't feel safe to feel. So any of those unsafe emotions, we have a process, we call it the easy method. And we just, we walk through that and we say, okay, I'm feeling an unsafe emotion. Like what, where am I feeling that? What's going on? What brought it on? Um, You know, when have I felt this before? What do I need? And then actually going through and and taking that action and giving yourself what you need. And um, it it is we we actually have uh, some healthcare providers who are in our spaces who are like teaching this these things to their patients. Okay. And their patients, yeah, their patients are like, wow, my my kiddo the other day was like doing this really weird thing, and I like used the easy method, and I didn't yell at them, and it was awesome. And I'm like, that right there. Mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, I can die happy now that that's happened. Right? <laughs> that's a great catalyst, Lee. What are you doing professionally now? Like how yeah. do people work with you? So the Institute, when we started it, I wanted it to have this overarching thread of safer, shame-free, more supported spaces, more connected spaces. I really should add that word because you've helped me realize how important that is. Um, so I thought, okay, where are the three places in my journey that I've needed this the most? And the first was just from a personal perspective of understanding what trauma is and what shame is, understanding how I can really show myself more compassion, um, how I can be more regulated in my day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So just those basics of, and I know they, I should say this, they're simple. They're not easy, right? Those basic foundational things that we're not teaching anywhere that I know of, like on a system level, really right. giving people those tools. And one of the big things in that group of people we say is it has a ripple effect. I got a message yesterday from a client who was like, I just want to let you know that my husband and kids have done, have changed nothing. Like they haven't listened to anything. They haven't done anything with you. And yet they are starting to shift the way they're looking at themselves and the way that they're doing things just based off what I'm doing. 100%. Which is really cool. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first group. The The second group of people was caring professionals. I thought, you know, I, my career would have been so different had day one of nursing school, somebody taught me trauma-informed care. Agree. So our goal is to really get this into the hands of not just, and we say caring professionals, because it's not just healthcare, it's teachers and educators. It's, um, you know, it's anybody who it's their job to quote unquote, help someone else. And then the third place, and this is the one that I've just been really excited about lately is, you know, whether you are a business of one or you are a massive organization, how do you create spaces that are more trauma sensitive, both for the people working in them Mm -hmm. and for the people who are um, being served and supported by them? Engaging with them. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a, uh, a process to look at, okay, what is our employee experience or our, um, our team experience, the internal experience, and what is the external experience? How are people experiencing us? Right. And we're actually building an accreditation around that for um, businesses and organizations so that they can say, yes, we are a trauma sensitive business because that is probably the biggest question I get asked now by people is how do you know if someone's trauma sensitive? How do you know if someone's trauma informed? And they're like, is there a list? I'm like, no, but there's going to be. So (laughs) that's one of the, the, that is the forefront of where we're going right now. And that's really exciting. Super exciting. Um, Okay. As we wrap up, I have just a couple of rapid fire questions. If you'll indulge me. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, first thing, What's one thing people get wrong about trauma-informed work? That it is really complicated. I think if you can just, not just, but if you can provide yourself and or someone else with attunement, which is, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to pay attention to you and I'm going to not judge you, Mm -hmm. right? I'm just going to be here with you and I'm going to listen and I'm not going to judge you. That alone, I would say, in 90% of scenarios where somebody's upset or dysregulated or, you know, anything builds connection with people mm-hmm. and that helps people feel safer. And it really feels good for you too. Yeah. So there's so many small things folks can do to be more. Yeah. If you had to go back or got to go back, I wouldn't say had to, but had the opportunity to go back and talk to young Lee, you kind oh. of alluded to this before about like, you wish you had more of this in nursing. What what would you tell her now? You know, so again, there was so much shame and I, I really, I, I would want her to know that so much of what she thought was a, her problem was a lack of resources and a lack of understanding by the people that were influencing her. And yeah, I think that's what, I mean, I think, and also, if, if I had that, I wouldn't be here. So there's that. But I love what you're saying, the first part, right? Like when we're feeling like it's all about us, it's often about systems and lack of resources and support. And yes, thank goodness we go through that and we learn and we grow. And it would have been so nice to have a different yes. environment. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I think often in healthcare, people get intimidated 
by professionals on any level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, will you share something that makes you perfectly imperfect? Um, <laughs> a messy human, as I call it. Oh, um, uh, anybody who knows me is going to really enjoy this question because I am, I am such a goofball and I am so clumsy. I, I used to, um, I used to put in central lines <laughs> and I would go in that patient's room, like rock out a bone marrow biopsy or a central line. And then I would trip over my feet walking out. And the patient's like, I'm really glad you did that on the way out, not the way in. Cause I don't know that I would have let you touch me, but like, that is, that's that, that's me. So, you know, just bruises all over the place. Like, where did this come from? And, and yeah, so very, I'm a goofball and I'm a klutz. I love that. Thank you. Um, it's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? <laughs> okay. So I have different food hyperfixations at different times. <laughs> so right now it's those Hershey hugs, like the white chocolate with the mm-hmm. milk, dark, dark chocolate in between. It'll be something different next week, but like, that's what we're, that's what we're rocking out right now. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fellow dark chocolate fan. So I totally get you. Um, we are going to link up to um, lots of things that you mentioned, the book around yeah. witches, nurses, and midwives, your website, Gabor Monte, you mentioned, we'll link up to his work so people yeah. if they're interested can learn more. What's the best way, though, if someone wants to talk to you, reach out to you, that they can reach you? Yeah, uh, so our email, hello at instituteforTrauma.com. Um, we're really responsive there. And then I am... My two favorite places on social media to hang out are Facebook. If you DM me there, you'll get, you'll get me and it'll be pretty quick. And then TikTok is, um, I know I, I was like, TikTok is not a place I'm ever going to be. And then a year later, I'm like obsessed with TikTok. So I do a lot of like short 60 second trauma stuff and shame stuff over there. That's fun. What's your tag on TikTok? How do they find you? Um, it's at that one trauma coach and one is a number. Perfect. Okay. We'll link up all that in our show notes. So Lee, thank you so much for the work that you're doing for um, the two conversations we've had over the last couple of weeks. It's just been wonderful to hear your story and I appreciate you sharing your humanity so that other people can feel less alone. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I deeply enjoyed both conversations. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.